0: Eighteen verses Hebrews ten, verses one through eighteen. Beginning at verse one, Hebrews ten. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. We will now stand and sing Psalm 20, verses 1 and 2. Congregation, our text this morning comes to us from Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read the entire chapter. Chapter. There we read The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So far. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever meditated upon what it means that our God is holy? What may come quickly to mind is that simple definition that we often use for the word holy, meaning to be set apart. Our God is set apart, different, unique all-powerful, full of might and splendor. These are just a few things that we might consider when we describe God as holy. And I'm sure that we can think of many more. But brothers and sisters, these terms are merely descriptive. They do not begin to capture the reality of God's holiness. What would it really be like to experience God in his holiness? Think of Isaiah, who cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or consider the Israelites, who feared for their very lives, because they heard the Lord speak from the mountain. And such responses are not limited to the Old Testament. In the Revelation of John, we read that John fell at the feet of the glorified Christ as though dead because of the glory of his holy presence. Throughout the Bible, many feared to come into the presence of a holy God on account of their sin and God's holiness. And beloved, the irony of it all Is that that's not how it all started. God had created people to live in his holy presence. Adam was created good. And he walked with God in the garden. And isn't that the goal of redemption? That a renewed relationship would be established. So that we could once again enter into the holy presence of God without fear. Yet so often we do not see this as the ultimate goal of the Christian life. As people here on earth, we have the tendency to focus primarily on God's redemption from sin. Often we think that as long as I am saved, all is well. The congregation. This is a very shallow understanding of the Christian life. Redemption is not the goal. Rather, it's the starting point. Having been redeemed, God desires a renewed relationship with humanity, which is only possible when we are sanctified so that we might walk with him in holiness and enter into his presence. And that's the central message of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2 captures this theme very well. There the Lord commands his people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And if we look a little closer at the arrangement of the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we observe that Exodus highlights God's work of redemption. There we read about the Passover, the final plagues that that led to the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And from there, we read about God leading his people into the wilderness and giving them the tabernacle. And Exodus concludes in chapter 40 when that tabernacle is completed and God descends upon the tent of meeting, filling the tabernacle with his holy presence and his glory. The Holy God had come to dwell in the midst of his people, in the very center of the camp. Imagine the fear. These were the same people who had trembled at the sound of the Lord's voice on the mountain. How could they live in the presence of this holy God? And this is where Leviticus begins, laying out God's answer to this question through sacrifice they could be made holy and dwell in the presence of their God. Therefore, I proclaim to you God's word under the following theme and points. The burnt offering proclaims our acceptance by a holy God through substitution. And we see our need for a substitute. We see Christ's work as the substitute. And finally, we see God's acceptance of the substitute. Beloved, our text begins by making a clear connection to what precedes, the book of Exodus. Even though our translation starts with the words, the Lord called Moses, the Hebrew uses a form that suggests continuation from the preceding text and might more accurately be translated as, then the Lord called Moses. And so we need to understand that Leviticus picks up where Exodus leaves off. And we should take note that the Hebrew uses Yahweh for the name of the Lord, the faithful covenant God, the creator and giver of life, who now dwelt in the tabernacle in their very midst. And he was indeed faithful to that covenant, giving to the people of Israel the sacrifices that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And so we read that the first thing that God does after descending upon the tabernacle is to instruct Moses, his servant, to teach the people a proper response to his presence. There was a way for them to be in his presence and live through sacrifice. And for this reason, the sacrifices were something that brought great hope for a sinful people. God's deliverance from Egypt was only the first step in God's plan. God brought them out and he delivered them so that he might dwell among his people once again. Yet there was still an obstacle for this arrangement. Humanity's sin. Humanity was not holy. And so our faithful covenant God answers that need through the law of the sacrifice. Verse 2 of our text states that when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And here the word used for offering is very broad, referring to any type of offering. The equivalent in Greek is the word korban, defined by the gospel writer Mark in Mark 7 verse 11 as that which is devoted to the Lord. But this word fails to convey the deeper meaning of the individual sacrifices. And often our own understanding of sacrifices conform to this very limited and broad definition. We tend not to distinguish between the various types of sacrifices and gain a deeper understanding of Scripture from their significance. In a general way, we see sacrifice in the Old Testament as pointing to the redemption of Christ on the cross as our sacrificial lamb, in line with the Passover lamb of Exodus. But as we will see, this word serves to introduce five specific sacrifices, each of which has its own specific word and meaning. So there's much more to be learned from the laws of the sacrifice about the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 3, the regulations for the various sacrifices begin. The verse starts with that conditional word, if, indicating that the one offering a sacrifice had options regarding what type of sacrifice they could offer. And then our text continues, if his offering is a burnt offering. The burnt offering is the first of the five offerings described in the beginning of the book of Leviticus and will be the focus of the sermon this morning. The Hebrew word for this offering is hola and is actually the root word for the well-known word holocaust. This word points to a sacrifice where the victim was completely consumed and went up in smoke toward heaven. That's why it's also often referred to as the whole burnt offering. This is the only offering where no meat is consumed by the priest or the giver. Although our text indicates that the priest could keep the hide, the entire flesh of the animal was burned up. The whole life of the animal was to be an offering to God. It was to be presented at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This was an indication that the offering's intent was to make the way clear to enter in and have fellowship with God. In other words, to sanctify the giver and make them holy so that they might enter God's holy presence. This offering could be taken from the herd of cattle, the flock of sheep or goats, or from the birds, either a dove or a pigeon. And so we read in Leviticus 1, three parallel accounts of the burnt offering one for each group of animals. The Lord, in his mercy, makes it possible for anyone to present an offering, from the poorest to the richest. Socioeconomic position was not to be a barrier for entrance into the presence of God. And this continues to be a principle that the Church of Christ maintains. Membership in the Church of Christ is never based on finances. But regardless of economic position and type of animal used, there is one principle that permeates the whole burnt offering, the principle of perfection. The giver was obligated to offer the very best. In the case of an animal from the herd of the flock, it was to be a male without defect. The male was considered the stronger and more valuable animal, and it was to be perfect. As Malachi 1 indicates, it was an abomination to offer an animal that was sick, blind, or lame, as if a holy God would accept second-rate sacrifices. Verse 4 of our text instructs the giver of the burnt offering to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. This laying on of the hand represented the idea of transference or substitution. Simply, it meant that the animal was to take the place of the giver, This idea of substitution is found several times in Scripture. In Numbers 8, verse 10, we read about the Israelites laying their hand on the Levites who took the place of all the firstborn males in Israel as those consecrated for the Lord's service. The authority to bring offerings and perform sacrifices was transferred to the Levites alone. We find another example of substitution in Leviticus 16. There we read that Aaron laid both his hands on the scapegoat, representing the transference of Israel's sin to the goat. And so the presenter of the offering, by laying their hand on the animal's head, indicates their desire for that animal to take their place. This substitution was God's answer for one of the Israelites' greatest needs. The Lord had created humanity to live in fellowship with him. God's intent was that humanity would offer their whole lives in holy service to their God. But as we've already heard, sin had destroyed that relationship. Humanity incurred the penalty of God's just judgment. And to repair the damage, God's just judgment required satisfaction. Payment for sins needed to be made. But a sinner was unable to be the perfect sacrifice necessary to make such amends. And so humanity needed someone else to pay the penalty for their failure. Laying the hand upon the perfect animal pointed to that need. The regulations go on to require the giver to personally kill the animal. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. It was not to be killed by the priest but by the hand of the giver. Except in the case of the bird, the killing of the animal was not a clean and a sanitized event. No, the one making the offering put his hand to the task of slaughtering the animal. He did it up close and personal, an indication that his life was bound up with that of the animal's. There was no escaping the gruesome reality of the bloodshed that would follow. And it's at this point that the priest collects the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkles it against the side of the altar. This ritual signified that satisfaction had been made through the outpouring of blood. The animal was then cut into pieces and arranged to be burned. The uncleanness of the entrails was washed away to ensure a spotless sacrifice. And then the animal was completely burned with fire. Fire was symbolic of cleansing and purification. Verse 4 of our text clearly lays out the purpose of this sacrifice. There it states that the burnt offering shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The word translated as atonement conveys the idea of a ransom being paid or the idea that the offense had been stayed or expiated. The emphasis is not on the removal of sin and guilt, but on appeasement. The penalty of sin had been paid so that the offerer could be made holy and reestablish fellowship with God, his account having been made clean. However, Our reading in Hebrews 10 presents us with a seeming contradiction. There it says that the offerings were but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. In other words, these sacrifices did not actually accomplish what they represented. Our reading goes on to say that it was impossible for the sacrifices to make perfect those who drew near. And without perfection, it would be impossible To enter into the holy presence of God. The sacrificial animal was not the real substitute that was needed. It pointed to the substitutionary work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The sacrifice anticipated what was to come. And that brings us to our second point. Christ's work as the substitute. Beloved, the whole burnt offering did not "...itself make atonement for the presenter of the sacrifice, but served as a type, pointing forward to God's plan to send his Son. And although the sacrifice did not accomplish what it represented, it was not an empty ceremony either. It had deep spiritual significance for the giver, pointing in anticipation to a blessing yet to appear, pointing to Christ." The Old Testament believer was taught through the sacrifice to believe in the perfect one who was to come as the perfect sacrifice and substitute. The one who came with the burnt offering showed in action that he understood his need for a substitute. He could not pay the penalty, as our catechism states so clearly when it asks, could we ourselves make this payment? And he understood the familiar answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. And so he had to rely on Christ's atonement, the payment of the one who was to come. The offerer believed that the coming sacrifice was necessary to be sanctified and made holy. And so we see that the Old Testament believers were also saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The sacrifice required the believer to trust in the Lord's answer that was being taught through that sacrifice. But congregation, let's not think that it doesn't teach us something as well. It also teaches us something about our reality. We who believe must recognize that in our sin we had nothing to offer in payment for the penalty which we deserved. We, like the Old Testament believers, needed a perfect substitute. And so so Leviticus 1 teaches us to place our hand upon our substitute and be united with him, looking to him in faith to pay the penalty for us. But it also brings us face to face with the very personal nature of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In placing my faith in him as my substitute, I condemned him to death. Christ didn't die for some nameless people. He died for me. He died in my place. It's as if I held the knife in my hand and took his life like the one bringing the burnt offering. I cannot escape the harsh reality that he died in my stead for my sin. But there's also, beloved, that ray of hope. Familiar to the Israelites that as my substitute dies, so I in my sin die. And there is a recognition that as the animal is offered up as a perfect sacrifice, so my life should be offered up as a living sacrifice to my God. That's why Colossians 3 verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Being united with Christ in his death means that we also must die to sin. Two verses further in Colossians 3 we are instructed, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And this is a good start, but being made holy is not simply a matter of putting to death that which is wrong in my life. Colossians 3 verse 12 and following encourages us to live a holy life by putting on godliness. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And the passage continues to relay what a holy life looks like. And so, beloved, although the emphasis of the burnt offering is on death, it should not overshadow the goal. The hope and the joy of the burnt offering points to the fulfillment of God's plan accomplished through Jesus Christ. And its ultimate goal is a life in fellowship with God. An avenue back into the holy presence of our God. His blood was poured out in payment for our sin. Our debt was paid in full. His body was given up to cleanse us like the animals burned in the fire. So that we might be made holy. And that we might die to sin and live to God. And having been made holy. That we could be less blessed to live In fellowship with our God. This was God's plan revealed by the whole burnt offering. Hebrews 10, our reading makes that clear. Verse 8 reminds us that God has neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. The sacrifices were not an end in themselves. Verse 9 shows that Christ presents himself as the burnt offering. When he added, Behold, I have come to do your will, he came to be the sacrifice for us. And our reading goes on to say that by this he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This final sacrifice put an end to the need for the burnt offering. For when the type was fulfilled, there was no longer any need to look forward. But beloved, the reality remains. We still stand in need of Christ as our substitute. Because it is only through his substitutionary sacrifice that we are accepted by God. Having been made holy. And this brings us to our third point. God's acceptance of the substitute. For the Old Testament believer... Who brought a burnt offering, it was a sign of faith in the Lord's plan to create a way for renewed fellowship. Verse 4 states that it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The term accepted has the idea that the sacrifice was efficacious or perhaps you might say effective in establishing and bringing about reconciliation between God and the giver. The account had been settled and the relationship restored. Our text indicates that the Old Testament believer was not left wondering about their status with God. Faith in the future fulfillment of the sacrifice was still faith in Jesus Christ. Our reading in Hebrews 10 verse 14 tells us of the power of that sacrifice. There it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified, those for all time, past, present, future, are made holy and acceptable to God in perfection through the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It confirms what our confession on justification states in Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism, that God imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And it pleased God to work Salvation in this way. Each of the sections of the various burnt offerings end in the same way, describing the burnt offering as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Two of the other offerings are also described in this way, the thank offering and the fellowship offering. What all three of these offerings have in common is their focus on humanity's restored relationship with God. God is pleased because in His covenant love for His people, He desires that the broken relationship between humanity and God is restored. It brings God joy to live in the midst of a holy people. And that's the good news for us this morning as well, congregation. The news that when we place our faith in Christ... As our atoning sacrifice, we can be assured of a renewed fellowship with God, just like the Israelite who came with the burnt offering. Christ's sacrifice has paid the price for my sin so that I'm justified before God and my life can rise up before my maker as a pleasing aroma. And the New Testament believer experiences even more than their Old Testament counterparts. God no longer dwells at arm's length in the tabernacle. With the fulfillment of the burnt offering, the way was made clear into the holy place where God dwells. So that we who believe could be the recipients of his Holy Spirit, we experience his presence now. Isn't that how our reading in Hebrews concludes? And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. We have become temples of the Holy Spirit, vessels in union with a holy God. And then the author of the Hebrews gives us the joy of these comforting words. For those living in this renewed relationship with their God, I will remember their sins And their lawless deeds no more. Because Christ is my substitute. I am accepted into the presence of my holy God. Hallelujah. Amen.